0: On the one hand, we enjoy the healthiest, most affluent, and most secure society that has ever existed. On the other hand, in spite of these blessings, we have some of the highest rates of depression, anxiety, and and unhappiness than at any other time. How do we account for our misery in spite of our decadence? While we might point to many different factors, I argue that one of the most prominent is that people have lost a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. I recently gave a talk at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary on this issue and how Christianity provides an answer for our culture sickness. In this episode, I'm excited to share part one of that conference session with you. If you enjoy it, I also have a new article out at Boundless on the same topic, and you can find the link to that in the show notes. Before we dive into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you can get all of the latest content from this podcast sent directly into your inbox visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcast, whether it be on YouTube or elsewhere, so that you can get all future episodes right on your homepage. If you're helped by this content, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review and shared the show with your friends. Leave Filter, a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and also write a review on Apple Podcasts. This will only take a minute of your time, but whenever you do these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Lastly, let me remind you to send in your questions, reflections, or other feedback. I love hearing from you guys, whether it be on social media, YouTube, or in the reviews. And so I'll be choosing these select messages questions, reflections, and so on to interact with in future bonus episodes. You can send in a voice message by using the link to Anchor that's in the show notes. You can leave a comment on YouTube or even share a comment on social media. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this episode on the problem of purpose.
1: In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said... If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death, I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Apologetics, when we go to the classic uh, proof text verse for is in 1 Peter 3. And specifically what apologetics is, uh, according to Peter, is a defense for the hope that is within us. More than just, and I'm not against uh, the classical arguments for God or, the, uh, or, or any other debates uh, regarding cosmology uh, or whatever else, but most specifically, apologetics is meant to be a defense for the hope that is within us. And if this is true, and if this is apologetics at its purest form, then there is no greater time where there has been a need for apologetics than in our uh, current cultural moment because right now, in our society, attempts to satisfy the desire for our true country, like Lewis talked about, with the things of the world, is driving our culture to despair. We've been living in the pandemic age for the past twenty years or so. Sorry, two years, and uh, and but the, 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 there has been a sickness and a disease that has been far worse than COVID and has been ravaging our society for decades longer than COVID-19. And this is this despair, which has come from people trying to satisfy that desire. What our culture needs today is a source of purpose that satisfies that desire, a source of purpose that satisfies uh, their, their life and the, the reason for their existence. Moreover, a source of purpose that not, that not only satisfies, but one that cannot be taken away by suffering. This is the task of Christian apologetics. Our task is to show how this source of meaning and purpose is uniquely offered to men and women in the Christian worldview, as opposed to any other worldview, or especially the answers of our postmodern society. This is what we're gonna look at today. First, we're gonna look at the problem. I'm gonna talk about that pandemic that we've been experiencing. The problem, we're gonna talk about then the empty life, and then, in contrast, the full life that is offered to us in the gospel. And then, lastly, how to live that full life. Leave you with some practical steps. So let's begin with the problem. In 2019, so two, years, uh, two or three years ago now, back in 2019, suicide was the lead, second leading cause of death among Americans aged 1 to 44. Suicide. This number, as the second major leading cause of death, was second only to what was number one, which was poisoning. Now, you might ask yourself, how are so many people poisoning themselves? This is because the CDC classifies drug overdoses, drug abuse that leads to opioid overdoses and death, as poisoning. So this number and this this statistic with suicide being the second leading cause of death among Americans aged 1 to 44 back in 2019 does not even include those deaths, which we might also classify as deaths of despair, being deaths due to alcohol poisoning or drug overdoses. If we were to add in these other deaths of despair, it would add on literally tens of thousands of more deaths in this category and age range from 1 to 44. We call these deaths of despair, whether they be through drug uh, drug use and abuse, uh, alcohol poisoning, uh, other uh, causes of death that were initiated by the abuse of alcohol or suicide. These deaths of despair have been increasing across our nation. In Newsweek, uh, Laura C- Corpar reported that the CDC had reported uh, in this past November a projection of over 100,000 people dying of drug overdose in 2021. Once again, that is over 100,000 people projected as dying from drug overdose in 2021. What they said is that death by drug overdose is now more frequent than deaths from car crashes, guns, flu, and pneumonia. In addition to this, our youth specifically are suffering at an alarming rate. Just a few weeks ago, the U.S. Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, issued an advisory. This was back on December 7th, uh, like I said, just a few weeks ago, that tried to alert the public to this crisis of mental health among the youth in our nation. Summarizing it, uh, Maria Louisa Paul in the Washington Post said this, compared with 2019, so just a couple years ago, compared with 2019, Emergency room visits for suicide attempts rose 51% for adolescent girls in early 2021. Among boys, there was a 4% point increase. Depression and anxiety doubled during the coronavirus pandemic, with 25% of youths experiencing depressive symptoms and 20% suffering anxiety symptoms. This is shocking but it is actually just an exponential jump in what was already an increasing trend. If you read the Surgeon General's report, he wrote this. From 2009 to 2019, so those numbers that I read to you before were just in 2019, right? That, that's a drastic jump. Like I said, it's even more shocking if we considered what was happening the decade leading to 2019, So Murphy says, from 2009 to 2019, the proportion of high school students reporting persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness increased by 40%. The share seriously considering attempting suicide increased by 36%. And the share creating a suicide plan increased by 44%. Between 2011 and 2015, youth psychiatric visits to emergency departments for depression, anxiety, and behavioral challenges increased by 28 percent. Between 2007 and 2018, suicide rates among youth ages 10 to 24 in the U.S. increased by 57 percent. Early estimates from the National Center for Health Statistics suggest that there are tragically more than 6,600 deaths by suicide among the 10 to 24 age group in 2020. That's one year, 6,000 600 suicides among the 10 to 24 age group. To put that in perspective, according to the CDC, for the years 2020 and 2021, among ages 0 to 29, so a longer time period and in a higher age range, there were only 5,553 deaths from COVID. We have seen far more deaths and losses of life among youth from suicide we even have from the pandemic that we've been suffering the problem is that there's been a loss of happiness and an increase of depression anxiety and despair all these things have been rising been increasing in our society despite our decadence these numbers like i said of the past year two years and decade once again, are even more shocking if we understand that this has been a trend which has been going on for even the past several decades. These numbers were already on the rise. From 1972 to 2006, people in affluent countries have not become happier as they have grown richer, got healthier, or had higher standards of living. According to a 2005 study, I believe this was in The Economist, according to a 2005 study in The Economist, Americans are twice as wealthy far healthier and safer than 50 years before. Yet, depression rates are 10 times higher than during and before the 1950s. There is a renowned psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania named Martin Seligman. He's one of the top authorities in the study of happiness. And he wrote that in the span of one generation, which was the baby boomers, Americans tend to be 10 times more depressed and less happy than previous generations the big question after hearing all of these statistics and considering just how much of a rise we've had in all of these deaths of despair these mental health issues and so on the big question should be why the big question should be why because in order to know what to do about it we need to correctly diagnose the issue And the wrong answer to the why question will lead to the wrong solutions and will not save lives. So we need to get this question right. The question is why? Well, what did the experts say? In Vivek Murthy's uh, Surgeon General Advisory, he said this He said, Researchers point to the growing use of digital media, increasing academic pressure, limited access to mental health care, health risk behaviors such as alcohol and drug use and broader stressors, such as the 2008 financial crisis, rising income inequality, racism, gun violence, and climate change. Now, on the surface, all of these sound plausible, and I'm not denying that any of them, in one degree or another, will make uh, depression worse and could add to suffering someone experiences. But does it really answer the question for why these rates have been growing at such an alarming rate? For all those reasons that were listed by... The experts in the Surgeon General's report were any of those? Are any of those worse now today than they were in the pre-1950s? Uh, expect, was, was, is racism worse today than it was in the pre-1950s? Is, is gun violence? Is the financial crisis of 2008 worse than the Great Depression? Right? Uh, so many other things. Do we really have less access to mental health care today than we did back then? So increasing ac- academic pressure today. Versus those generations, that's a joke. This cannot sufficiently answer why we are seeing these increases in suffering and mental health and so on. I think there's a better answer, or at least one that might lead us in the right direction. And a book that was written, uh, co-authored by a psychologist named Edmund Bourne and, and his co-author, they, auth- they argued that there were three points that were driving the epidemic of depression and anxiety in our society. The first one was the pace of modern life. I think that's one that kind of sums up uh, some of the things that were explained in the Surgeon General's report, right? The the, the frantic uh, pace that we live our modern life. It is unsustainable, and it is extremely unhealthy. So there is much legitimacy to that. Like I said, there was legitimacy to many of the things they listed, uh, just not sufficient. The second point uh, was the loss of a sense of community and deep connectedness beyond the superficial. I think there's a lot of validity to that one as well. However, it's in the third one that I think there is a very deep point and something that leads us in the right direction. They listed as the reason for these rising rates, the emergence of moral relativism. Here's what they wrote. Norms in modern life are highly pluralistic. There is no shared, consistent, socially agreed upon set of values and standards for people to live by. In the vacuum left, most of us attempt to fend for ourselves. And the resultant uncertainty about how to conduct our lives leaves ample room for anxiety. Faced with a barrage of inconsistent worldviews and standards presented by the media, we are left with the responsibility of having to create our own meaning and moral order. When we are unable to find that meaning, many of us are prone to fill the gap with what's left with various forms of escapism and addiction. We tend to live out of tune with ourselves and thus find ourselves anxious. I think what they what they listed there and what they explained leads us in the right direction and leads us to what I believe is uh, the big why behind what we're experiencing. There are certainly other uh, uh, contributing factors, and there are other things such as uh, decades and, and generations of trauma, abuse, and so on. I understand those, but speaking as an apologist and speaking in terms of worldview and cultural analysis, I think the big why is this what I call the problem of purpose. We are suffering today, and we are experiencing this epidemic today that has been going on for generations because people are suffering due to a loss of meaning and purpose in life. The problem of purpose. Here's the kind of purpose and meaning that we need that people have been lacking and has been causing this anxiety that uh, that Bourne and his co-author described. This is the kind of purpose that we need. One, we need a purpose that gives us a reason for existence we need a pur- we need to know a purpose for our lives that gives our existence that gives our lives our taking up space on this earth a reason for its existence okay that's what we need purpose the second thing is meaning so understanding what these words mean so that's purpose the second meaning meaning is the result of living out our purpose so purpose is knowing why we exist and the meaning is something that we experience whenever we then live out our purpose. It's the experience of knowing that our life matters and that we are spending our life with any significance at all. This is what we need. This is what we mean when I talk about having purpose and meaning in life. Moreover, the kind of purpose and meaning that we need in our lives is not just one that gives us that reason for existence, that, that helps us to know and experience that our life matters, but we need to have a meaning of purpose that cannot be taken away by suffering. Because we live in a dangerous world. We live in a world where, uh, where there's chaos. We live in a world where as Christians we say there is sin, there's wickedness, there's death. And so if we are to live well in the world we find ourselves in, then we need a source of meaning of purpose. We need a meaning of purpose that is resilient enough to survive despite the suffering that we face in life. So the question is can postmodernism, the society that we find ourselves living in today, can postmodernism supply us with the purpose and meaning that we need? Let's consider that question. Back in 1980, some of you guys might remember or be familiar with the book and TV series Cosmos. It first aired back in, I think it was September of 1980. Whenever that uh, hit TV show aired, it was it was hosted by Carl Sagan. He opened his book and the TV series by saying this. The cosmo not cosmo Cosmos. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. He went on from that to then say that because of this truth, what he puts forward is a truth, it means that it is up to us to decide our own faith. What's interesting here in this show that was put forward to be a, a television television series about science. Right, What Carl Sagan was doing whenever he was opening this show under the guise of science was actually uh, making a philosophical statement. Under the guise of uh, putting forward a scientific TV show, he was actually putting forward a show to introduce and teach a new worldview. Sagan is one of the most uh, effective evangelists that we have ever had for the naturalist or materialist worldview. And this worldview is one of the most salient features of postmodernism. The worldview that says that, our, that the cosmos, as he said it, is all that there is. It's all that there ever has been. It is all that there ever will be. James Sear, in his book, The Universe Next Door, sums up uh, naturalism, the, the worldview of naturalism, in several different statements. I just want to give you a couple of key ones. The first way he sums it up is saying this naturalism means that prime reality is matter so by matter we mean scientifically the the world of of things of rocks and trees and wood and and so on prime reality is matter matter exists eternally and is all there is god does not exist right that's just another restatement essentially of what sagan said that the cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be He's saying that the material world, the earth, and then the stars and all that is all that there is. Second, Seer said this, The cosmos exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. Once again, meaning that there is no intervention from a god a, uh, or even a divine or transcendent reality. Our world is a closed, naturalistic system where it is nothing but matter, and everything that happens is just a series of cause and effect in this closed system. A third statement that he uses to uh, sum up naturalism is that history is a linear stream of events linked by cause and effect, but without an overarching purpose. So what we get whenever we bring together these different... Uh, summaries and statements of defining what naturalism is, what we discover, uh, relevant to what we're talking about with the problem of purpose, is that according to naturalism, there is no ultimate purpose or meaning in life. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, According to the American Humanist Association's Humanist Manifesto 3, in there they assert that humans are an integral part of nature, the result of unguided evolutionary change what does that mean it means that we are an accident we are a great big materialistic cosmic accident that's what they mean by saying that there it was an unguided evolutionary uh change process right there was no guide there was no we might say intention right because intention it would imply purpose so if it is unguided it was not intentional We are just another part of nature. There's no specific purpose for us being here. Let me give you another example from the famous uh, atheist Bertrand Russell. He said, That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end which they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling, can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be cured beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. So, according to naturalism, being the predominant, I would argue, predominant uh, one of the world uh, worldviews and salient features of postmodernism, we are just here as an accident. There is no intention or purpose behind our lives. Therefore, there's no ultimate meaning or purpose to life. However, we as human beings still live with that desire. Like Lewis talked about, a desire, a, a, a hunger, a drive uh, that, we, that we look to find satisfied by something in the world. So if people live according to this worldview that says that there is no objective or ultimate purpose and meaning for human life or for an individual's life, where are people going to turn? In naturalism, I'm going to give you, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways, but let me give you just three big ones. Three big ones that I think especially that define Western culture and American culture. And now for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. The first option that people will turn to is secular humanism. Secular humanism. James Sear explains that, you know, humanism in its most basic form just means a belief in, uh, in the uniqueness of humanity and that the individual is special okay that's what it means basically and so you can be a christian humanist right if you just believe that that humans are made in the image of god therefore inherit with dignity and 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 so on so what is a secular humanist a secular humanist summed up by seer would be a belief in the value of the individual human being and that persons with their thoughts skills dreams and vulnerabilities are significant but all based upon naturalistic reasoning. So it's trying to hold all those ideas and assumptions and presuppositions about humanity and our nature, but doing so without any Christian or especially theistic foundation. In other words, it is trying to maybe through science or through some other naturalistic reasoning, uh, find and craft and determine and assert that we are still, even though we have no ultimate foundation for it, we are still special. Maybe it's because of our rationality, or maybe it's because of this or that, All right, but that we are still special, the individual is valuable, and so on. This is an option that many people take in our culture and society today, secular humanism. In other words, I know this is overs- oversimplifying it, so forgive me, but it's the idea that says, let's just make it up. Let's just pretend. Let's just craft and determine our own foundation for meaning. A second major place that people might turn would be uh, Marxism or another form of statism or a a form of fascism, nationalism, and so on. Without anything larger than oneself to live for, people will inevitably turn to something which appears to be larger than the self, which will be the state. And so that can take form in right and left versions and so on. So fascism, Marxism, and whatever else. The atheist philosopher Luke Ferry, in his book called A Brief History of Thought, uh, sums up why Marxism or statism of another kind uh, tends to be one of the primary turns that people take after a rejection of, uh, of God or any divine existence. He said, How do we confront the fragility and finiteness of human existence, the mortality of all things in this world, and the absence of any principle external to and higher than humanity? This is the problem which the modern doctrines of salvation have tried to solve, for better or for worse, and has to be admittedly usually for the worse. Unable to continue believing in God, the moderns invented substitute religions, godless spiritualities, or to be blunt, ideologies which, while usually professing radical atheism, cling to notions of giving meaning to human existence, or at least justifying why we should die for them. So the turn that we see throughout the 20th century and in uh, more modern forms, even up until today, to various forms of statism, according to Ferry, and I would agree as well, are driven by this vacuum of not having meaning in life, not having anything bigger than oneself to give yourself to, to justify your reason for being here, and especially to justify giving your life to. And so this is what people turn to. Secular humanism, statism, and then the third... Uh, primary place that people turn to, and I think one that especially defines American culture, will be expressive individualism. Expressive individualism as a way to find purpose for your life. Uh, the scholar Carl Truman defines it this way. He said, expressive individualism's fundamental commitment to the idea that human persons are defined by their individual psychological core means that the purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expression, and the relationships that the self enters into with others. So expressive individualism. uh, It it means that you look deep within yourself to figure out who are you, right? Who who am I truly, and what is my identity, and, and what kind of identity do I want to build and craft for myself? But once I've discovered that, now my purpose in life is driven by expressing that identity, Okay, expressing that chosen purpose that I have designed for myself and especially in making sure that I can live it out in relationship to other people, expressive individualism. And you can fill in for yourself the many, many examples that we have of this in our culture. So whenever God is taken out of the picture, what ends up happening is that it becomes up to us to decide and fabricate our own meaning for life. Because we cannot just go along living life uh, in, uh, according to pure nihilism or the idea that there, there, there is no purpose and everything is just absurdity. Human beings, through one method or another, whether it's one of the three I listed here, the primary ones or another one, will try to fill that void and uh, decide their own meaning for life. However, the attempt to determine one's purpose in life in the closed system of naturalism, is a fool's errand. Here's why. Not only because there is no ultimate foundation for whatever one chooses to be their meaning and purpose in life, but also because of this. Without God as the supreme reality, and without Him as the foundation for truth, morality, and purpose, then naturalism inevitably slides into moral relativism, which will then render any self-determined purpose or meaning in life to ultimately be insignificant this is what the psychologist born and his co-author was writing about that i referred to earlier and what we can see in our culture whether one chooses secular humanism which says that you know we're just gonna we're gonna try to fabricate and build up and and, and find some reasons why we're still special why there's still some reasons why we, we can craft our meaning in life well once again if there's no objective foundation then w- what do they matter Right? What, what, what makes the difference between one individual's choosing of what their, their purpose and another? Let me just give you two. Let me give you two reasons why moral relativism ultimately makes the endeavor to determine our own meaning in life a fool's errand and a failure. The first one is this, more of an anecdote than anything else. Consider trying to play a game where there's no purpose to the game, okay? Let's say that right now, all of us in this room, I said, y'all want to play a game? He said, yeah. I, and I say, okay, you make the first move. What are you going to do? Right? You might stand up from your chair. Okay. The next person might walk out of the room. Okay. We all might flip a table over. Okay. Like, there's no purpose to the game. If there's no purpose to the game, if there are no set rules and, and, and uh, a common goal we're all moving towards, then any individual move within the game is ultimately insignificant and doesn't matter. We just go around doing whatever we want. Imagine trying to play Monopoly, but with no rules. And so you move your car, and I take a hammer and I smash it, and then I start throwing eggs at the wall and doing whatever else. Well, if there's no rules in the game, there's no purpose to it, and then... What I just is throwing eggs at the wall means is just as much as you adding money to your bank or whatever else you do in Monopoly. I haven't played Monopoly in a long time, so I was kind of making that up. Uh, But once again, if there is no greater purpose and if there is no rules to the game, then whatever you do, it really doesn't matter. All the individual moves in the purposeless game are ultimately purposeless. If there's no objective standard of right and wrong, good or bad, significant or insignificant, or honorable or dishonorable, then you cannot discern between any two people's choices of what is a good or bad or once again, honorable or dishonorable purpose in life. Without an objective standard, we have no grounds to say why Mother Teresa's purpose in life was any better than Hitler's purpose in life, or why someone who gives their 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 all their time and their career to being an entrepreneur and building a business that blesses the community, employs people, and does good things or a nonprofit or whatever else. Why what they have done is any more significant than this is something JP Moreland told me and I loved it. Than the person who spends their entire life just pushing a checker around on a board with their nose. In moral relativism, those two choices for how one ought to spend their life are equally relevant equally don't matter this is why naturalism and moral relativism cannot provide us with the meaning and purpose we need in life second there is this without god to provide us with a quote horizon of significance we have no ability to judge whether our chosen identities morals and purposes actually matter this is a kind of an overlapping point with one before but it's just looked at a little bit differently A horizon of significance is something that I learned from reading Charles Taylor in his book. uh, What was the name of that book? Where's my footnote? Yes, Ethics of Authenticity. Thank you. Um, Oh, it was right there in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in Ethics of Authenticity, he talks about how in expressive individualism we are free to just look inside ourselves and craft, decide, choose make up whatever identity we want for ourselves because ultimately there's no horizon. There's, no, there, there, there's nothing uh, framing that choosing. But what it does is it relativizes and makes any given chosen identity ultimately meaningless because without a horizon, right, without an objective set of points by which to judge the individual points of our life. And our movements, and our and whatever uh, crafts our identity. There's no way to make sense of it and to figure out if it's really significant or not. Here's what Taylor says. He says, "I can identify. uh, I'm sorry. I can define my identity only against the background of things that matter. Only if I exist in a world which history, or the demands of nature, or the needs of my fellow human beings, or the duties of citizenship, or the call of God, or something else of this order matters crucially." Only within these things can I define an identity for myself that is not ultimately trivial. Therefore, since naturalism and moral relativism will ultimately fail in giving people the foundation that they need to build a life where there is purpose and there is meaning, and those things fail, what people are inevitably going to do whenever they quit living for something bigger than themselves is they're just going to start placing themselves and their desires and whatever makes them feel the best first in their life this is what we've seen happening in our culture ever since at least the 1960s as our as our society has uh, embraced these ideas in greater and greater measure people just started living for themselves and whatever makes themselves the most happy and what it has ended up doing is creating a culture of empty selves there's a psychologist named philip cushman he wrote an article Uh, called why the self is empty and he said this the empty self is filled up with consumer goods calories experiences politicians romantic partners and empathetic therapists the empty self experiences a significant absence of community tradition and shared meaning a lack of personal conviction and worth and it embodies the absences as a chronic undifferentiated emotional hunger once again, as I said before, as our modern luxuries and as our health and our and our wealth and our standard of living has greatly increased, so has our depression, anxiety, and dissatisfaction. Because as these things increased, we increasingly looked to them and turned to them more and more to fill that desire for our true country. We looked to them more and more to fill and to quiet and to distract us from the anxiety of living in a closed system in a moral relativistic society and then it just ends up being a vicious uh, cycle of more pain more filling ourselves with empty things and so on especially there is this even if you're living a great life and your chosen purpose your 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 self-crafted identity is going great what happens when pain failure and disappointment enters the picture, even if one were to choose something as, as good and noble we could say as good and noble as being uh, being the best employee at their business that they can possibly be, just crushing it at work every day, being a team player right doing the hard jobs the one that no one else wants to do and, and in that they find a lot of meaning they get a lot of significance from it. Well, what happens whenever the business goes under and they get laid off? their sense of meaning has now, it's like a rug pulled out from beneath them. The floor fell out underneath them, right? What happens then? What happens if your sense of meaning and purpose in life comes from just uh, just pleasures and from experiences and the, the, the things that you can do, and then you're struck with a disease, you're struck with sickness that takes away your ability to travel and get experiences, your ability to have romantic partners or your ability to do whatever those other things were. Once again, if you have a self-determined identity, then that is one that can be taken away by suffering. This is why as well, we live in a culture that is not only sick with anxiety and depression, but one which is filled with people who are extremely fragile. We live in a culture where as our decadence has increased, so as our fragility, we cannot handle hardship, we cannot handle pain, we cannot handle risk, we cannot handle danger, Therefore, along with that, we can't handle adventure. We can't handle all the things that add up to really living a full life. Because we avoid the risk, we avoid the pain, we avoid the discomfort. Because those things threaten what we really find our happiness in. Who could have seen this coming? I'll tell you who. Jesus. In Matthew sixteen twenty-five, he said this. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? He says, What would it benefit someone if they gained the whole world and lost their life? I read that and I thought, That is exactly what we are doing. Our decadence is growing. Our, our wealth and our, our standards of living, they're, they're going through the roof in a way that no society in human history could have possibly imagined. We are gaining the world and literally losing our lives. As I read in all those st- statistics earlier. What this shows us is that life without God is an empty life. Life without God. Life where our happiness is supposed to be filled by earthly things. Our desire for our true country is supposed to be just crafted from our own chosen identities in a morally relativistic universe that leads us to an empty life. How does the gospel offer us hope for a full life?
0: Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on social media or American leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from for me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.